Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 49. I'm Mike Uptograph. And I'm Joshua Klein. We're going to so, have to do something to celebrate episode 50. Oh, 50? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good round that's number. That's right 50. around the corner. What are we going to talk about in 50? <laughs> we uh, maybe some woodwork. We can't yet disclose no, the contents no. of 50. Uh, but we are coming up on the end of the year. Um, we are, uh, we've been so crazy busy with the house building project and so many different things. We're right now working on issue 14 and just thinking about all that stuff. Um, but this is, uh, as of this recording, this is the first week of December, first full week of December. And that means that the cutoff for Christmas ordering is has come upon us or is about right to come around upon the us. Corner. Yeah. Uh, and so what we're telling, you know, how shipping is in the world uh, these days. So we had to you know, reach out and figure out all the details. And so what we're saying is the last safe day to order for Christmas ordering is Saturday, December 10th, mm-hmm. um, which is this coming Saturday, if you're hearing this hot off the press. Um, so we have that that coming up. It's uh, We have a gift guide that we've published on our website and a few different things if you want some, some direction. You know, our catalog has been growing, so it can get, you know, if you're uh, not really familiar with our catalog, you can get in and say, wow, I don't know yeah. what to order, all these different things. We have a little gift guide that's, you know, kind of directing you to, you know, a good starting place. Yeah. Um, and uh, basically, sort of in celebration of this, the year wrapping up, we're doing something that we never do. Yeah, actually. This is not like us. I didn't, e- <laughs> I, I didn't even ask permission. I sent out yeah. an email yesterday. He just did it. And I just put a 20% store-wide discount uh, coupon code out there. Yeah. So that, uh, that bad discount, idea. Yeah. <laughs> Mike was really mad when he came in this morning. Yeah. Couldn't believe it. 20% store wide discount. Um, <laughs> so this is, uh, again, this is good through, um, the, uh, through Saturday of, of December 10th. 10th. Yep. Um, so the coupon code, and we'll link to it in the show notes, but it's MTXmas 2022. And you can listen to that again. Or you can check the show notes and copy and paste it. That's probably safer. Yeah. Uh, but that's twenty percent off your order, which uh, is a, a hefty chunk. That's yep. that's uh, very generous of you, Joshua. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So you have a few days to to jump on that if you're hearing this podcast fresh, um, and we also have uh, recently released our Skills Over Jigs online course. Um, and so this this new course I put together because I wanted to emphasize and highlight uh, that the way we've put it is we're, this is sort of rehab for the jig dependent. Uh, the hand tool woodworker who uses a lot of jigs and a lot of guides and a lot of things to make the work come out just right mm. because they're not you know confident in sawing abilities or whatever. And so this whole program is either habilitation or rehabilitation, depending on if you have not yet gained or have lost those those uh, dexterous hand skills. And so this is a kind of a guided uh, a guided course, uh, giving you some exercises for for developing these hand skills, so that you're not dependent on jigs to do accurate work. Jigs are useful. But this course is designed to free you from dependence on them. You don't you don't need them to be able to do fast work or, or accurate work. And so the whole idea with this is that uh, when you're not doing big batch production, you're just doing one-off, if you have the skill already in your hand, it's a lot faster just to cut to the line right. than to get this complicated jig set up and 
get everything just so and to mess with everything for that one cut, you know, that's really going to bog you down. And frankly, it's not that fun to, to set up a jig. It might be yeah. fun to make a jig because it's creative, but actually getting the thing set up and dialed in, I don't know. That's not, that's not yeah. a blast to me. That's not why I do woodworking. Yeah. Yeah, you you need to start questioning the the value of a jig if it takes far longer to make and employ the jig than it does to just do the thing by hand. Uh, and oftentimes you see that, especially with machines that, as we've discussed, they necessitate jigs for your own safety. Sure. You can't freehand on a table saw. So you need a jig. Um, but oftentimes the the setup and the precision needed to to run some sort of operation through a table saw with a jig is just easier by hand. Mm-hmm. But, yep. um, so that course, Skills Over Jigs, is uh, available now. Uh, it's You'll find it under the courses on our website. We have, uh, we're getting a, a decent little pile of them in there. Yeah, the, well, and the courses. 20% discount does apply to that too. So yeah. uh, right now, uh, through this month, the cost of that, that course is $19. Uh, starting next year, starting in January, it will go up to $25. So, I mean, I don't know. This week would be the time to get it. Yeah. 19 20% plus 20%. 19. Yeah. Uh, so, or minus 20%. Minus 20%. Not plus 20%. Yeah. 20% <laughs> off. Uh, but yeah, so we are we are fresh off uh, getting that course up and running and interacting with people about it. And so it's right in the forefront of our minds. Yeah. Jigs, skills, tools. On the dispatch, we keep talking yeah. about jigs and you know, trying to qualify things and clarify things. And... We, we had a fun competition where we asked people to send us or, or list um, or give us information about the most, uh, say, like ridiculous or goofiest woodworking jig they'd seen. And we, I. we gave away T-shirts to the winners. I.e. the one that is so complicated or takes so much time to build and set up and use you know, comparison in comparison to the actual usefulness of the thing. Right. Uh, the person that can show the the jig that has the greatest disparity between those two. Yeah. And there's there's some good ones out there. It is so much fun to uh, look at these like YouTube links and go, what on earth <laughs> is that about? Um, you know, it takes a great uh, great degree of ingenuity to come up with these things, but I don't know how efficient it is to use them. <laughs> So, uh, so all this stuff is really in the forefront of our minds, and we thought that that would make a really great discussion for this podcast. We're calling it Tools, Jigs, and Meanings. Meanings. Not just meaning, but meanings. Um, so I guess the question is, if, if, you're, if we're starting, to, uh, starting the conversation with definitions, we've got to define our terms, right? So what is a jig, and, uh, and why does that matter? Yeah, well, so on the dispatch, we just recorded a video that we were uh, showing some examples and talking about this. Um, so this is, you know, I would distill it down to what we talked about there. Um, but basically, when you think about a jig, uh, it's important to have a, a clear distinction between a jig and a fixture. Yes. Because I think if you if you have that in mind, then you're able to more clearly visualize what a jig is actually for. So a jig is something, it's a device that it guides the cutting action of the tool. So this is a miter box or, you know, some other sort of uh, fence that's establishing that this, this uh, plow plane iron or whatever, it, it can't exceed beyond this point. That there's something, some fixed thing that says, as this thing's cutting, here is where the tool 
is going to go. It's controlling right. the cutting action. Right. So that's what a jig is. It's controlling the cutting action of a tool. Mm -hmm. But a fixture isn't doing that. A fixture is actually something that just fixes or holds the stock. Yeah, like a, like a hold it. fast or a vice. Hold fast, that's, vice. That's a fixture because it doesn't affect the cut. It's just right. holding the board. You can still make a lousy cut right. in a vice. Yeah, so that's a fixture. And that obviously those are both useful. Um, in a fixture, is really, it's, help, it's helpful to have something in your vice, but it's not a jig. A vice isn't a jig. Mm -hmm. A vice is a fixture. And so I think that's really valuable to be making that distinction because when you're thinking about, okay, skills over jigs, why would you say that? Because I have a vice. Yeah. I mean, what you're saying, you, saying? You, can't, you can't be skilled and have a vice. Right. <laughs> right. And so it's, it's uh, failing to see that distinction between something that's holding the work and something that is holding your tool mm -hmm. edge, that is guiding your tool edge. It's removing you a little bit out of the process for the sake of either um, efficiency or accuracy. Right. You, you become more the source of power and less the source of guidance for the tool, so yep. to speak. Um, yeah. So it's, it's very interesting because there is a lot of confusion about these distinctions. Um, what is a jig? Like we've, we've heard from some people, well, like pretty much everything's a jig, you know? So we, we talk freely about the fact that, say, a, um, a four plane is a jig, to a yeah, degree. Any, any hand plane is. Yeah, you, yeah. you are fixing, like if you were attempting to freehand smoothing a board with a chisel, you'd have trouble. So you fix that angle and then you can pass that over. So it's it sets the depth of your cutting edge and it sets the angle. So those things are no longer up to your skill uh, because you want them predictable. Those variables. Those two variables. The rest, right. of course, everyone knows you can inadvertently you know, chowder up a board by passing a plane mm -hmm. hard the wrong way with the grain. Right. So, so a hand plane is just reducing the number of variables. Right. To make it easier. Right. Right. Which is a jig. And so this, of course, I mean, if any of you are have been listening to our podcast for a while, or have been reading the magazine, uh, I think probably many of you are now saying, yeah, like David Pye. Yeah. Like exactly. You guys are basically yeah. just talking about workmanship of risk. Uh, versus workmanship of certainty. Yes, that's exactly what we're saying. And it is, I think it is helpful. That's why I think Pi is so right and so helpful. Um, when he was trying to define the nature of workmanship or craftsmanship, he was trying to get away from um, social definitions of the word. Um, and he was trying to really focus on like, you know, like handcrafted is craftsmanship or it's, it's hand done. He was, you know, connecting this with arts and crafts stuff. He was saying, I want to be super, super technical. Right. And so he started defining uh, craftsmanship as uh, something that you're exercising judgment, dexterity, and care when you're working, i.e. your hand can guide the tool edge, as opposed to workmanship of certainty, which is this trajectory of jigging up the tool further and further and further, right. uh, adding fences, adding stops, adding uh, different uh, external controls to secure the outcome of the operation. Mm -hmm. Nothing's perfect, but that's the workmanship of certainty direction. Right. Uh, that's the direction that, uh, that Pi is seeing is moving away from craftsmanship into this other form of workmanship, which, you know, you might call it technologizing mm -hmm. craft. Yeah. And, and so, um, you know, for our, um, our apprenticeship program, 
uh, one of the books that are required reading for our students is is David Pye, right? And um, some people read Pye and they say, why is he being, why is he, you know, being so precise here? Why does it matter to be so precise in his distinctions and definitions for this conversation about craftsmanship? Like, can't, who cares? Right. Like, like everyone is creative and everyone is, is a maker to a degree. And so, you know, why does it matter? Right. Can't we just all and get along? And of course that's true. Yeah, it is. And that's, it is true to a degree. That's not, it's not even the point. Right. It's not the point. There's a lot that people argue with Pi about that is actually not his point at all. Um, and so we want to talk about that today, like uh, why these distinctions are important and valuable. Like uh, it goes to the, the meaning part of the name of this, uh, this episode. Like why is it important that we maintain these meanings and these distinctions when we're trying to understand something? It could be woodworking or any subject. Like why is it valuable? Um, it's not because it's, uh, you know, stuffy or right. persnickety or, you know, uh, for the sake of being right. That's mm-hmm. not the point, but there's some other value to it. Yeah. And I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, fuzzy fuzzy thinking, I guess I would say. Um, just, you know, people trying to think about their work and that is very valuable. But if they're, if they're, if they're not clearly uh, making distinctions in, in how they're thinking about what they're doing... They're going to get maybe kind of mixed up, and they're not going to clearly understand the difference between a tool or a machine or you know that uh-huh. kind of thing. And you see, you hear that kind of thing uh, quite a bit. So people, you know, aren't able to uh, have the um, the pieces in place to to get that full clear picture. Yeah. So uh, we'll start with like one of the most basic, my favorite distinction. All right. So what is a tool? So I've heard on like. Um, woodworking podcast sometimes you'll hear mention like what's your favorite tool and i heard one time that's always the question yeah what's your favorite right it's like, you, here's well, a hint buddy the elf, if you're ever your interviewing color? a woodworker make sure you ask what is your favorite yeah. tool and then your favorite wood to work all right so uh, i heard the answer once saying my hands are my favorite tools and that gets you scratching your head about what a, what constitutes a tool so yeah. if if we are not clear in our distinctions, we start getting muddled right off the bat about what is and is not a tool. Right. Um, because if it, literally everything and anything and everything could be a tool mm-hmm. by this definition. So that sure. means that the word tool no longer has any meaning. Right, right. That's the issue. That's a problem. So you say like, my lungs are my favorite tool because yeah. they give me the, the breath to be able to stand at the bench. Yeah. It's like, well, that I mean, yeah, your lungs are very important, but that's not the question. The question is about you know, of your, of your woodworking tools, which brings you the most satisfaction, <laughs> right. right? So I think having that kind of thing in mind is really, um, is, is right on track with the same distinction between uh, jigs and fixtures and that kind of thing. I mean, really, I think it gets confusing because people do, you know, in, in any dis- discussion you're trying to have, you need to establish your terminology, yes. establish your definitions. And so people use words like tool in very intentionally broad ways. And they realize that there are other ways to define tool. But what ends up happening is people start using the word tool, for example, in all these different ways. And all of a sudden you get back to woodworkers and they aren't able to make, you know, more precise or technical distinctions. So like even one of my favorite authors, um, uh, sort of a philosopher, social critic, 
uh, Ivan Illich, he just he talks about tools for conviviality, and he he defines tools to include institutions right. and like yeah, all sorts of very things. broadly. And he he acknowledges I'm using this in a very um, unconventional way, very very broad. Um, but but really, when we're thinking about craft and we're thinking about uh, the work of our hands, what we're uh, busy about, the most relevant uh, two terms, as as you said, they're tool and machine, because I think a lot of times people think, oh, tool is like, you know, something you hold in your hand, like it's human powered mm. and a machine is like electric. Yeah. Or wait, is it maybe coal too? Yeah. Yeah. Well, how about how animal about steam power? When, when they were steam oh, powered wait a minute. waves. Yeah. Right. So you start going down this path of like, you get totally off on a tangent thinking about what power source. Yep. But power source really doesn't have anything at all to do with the distinction between a tool and a machine. And the reason that these two terms are helpful is because they really do kind of map on an overlay with this, this jig skill thing and also this workmanship of risk and certainty. They're, they're uh, different uh, extensions of this same sort of identification that a tool, and, and it's, it's defined pretty broadly generally. If you look in the Oxford English Dictionary, you, you dig deeper, it's pretty general. Mm -hmm. um, actually, they even unhelpfully many times will say, you know, it's an instrument that is used by hand, mm -hmm. which yeah, of course begs the question, like, wait, that's yeah, so really the that distinction. Um, but so a more, I think a more precise way to say it would be an instrument that extends the capacity of the agent of the of the woodworker, so it's an it's an instrument. It's a thing you're using to extend your capacity outwards. Say like a pencil mm -hmm. or a chisel, right? Yeah. It's it's uh, in your hand, and you're saying, "I want to carve this. I want to write this word." And so this tool gets put into your hands, and it's extending your ability yeah. to do something. It's a very basic yes, definition, but it does it does draw. Uh, it's exclusive. It is outside the woodworker, him or mm -hmm. herself. These are not hands, right? This yeah. Is so by definition, part of your body cannot yeah. be a woodworking tool, <clears throat> right? So that's good. So we're starting to get some clarity about what a tool is. It is not me. I'm not a tool. I'm just putting well, that out there. <laughs> putting that out there for everyone. I'm not a tool. Um, <laughs> So and you're not a tool either. Well, thank based you. on that definition, yes. Thank you. Uh, so so that's good. It's good to iron these things out. Like, um, you know, my our oldest is doing team policy debate, and so part of uh, starting that debate is laying out definitions for the terms. And so as the, this debate unfolds, when they do their rebuttals and things like that, the teams will argue about those definitions. They will say, I agree with this definition, this definition, this definition I disagree with, and so we propose this definition. And so then the first team can go and then uh, say whether or not they agree with that definition. But basically, by the end of the debate, you've come into an agreement about the terms, and that is a very important part of the debate process. It's the very important part of any rational conversation so mm -hmm. so here we are so here's here's one more um piece to add to that it's not uh, the tool is not only something that can be used as an extension of a capacity but it's something that is being used as an mm. extension of capacity or mm -hmm. is designed to so for example a, a rock yeah could be used as a tool yeah but what's the difference between a rock as a paperweight and a rock as a like a hammer or something right 
intention. It's intention, yeah. Use and application. So a rock, you might go on a hike and you might see a rock on the ground. That's not a tool because it could potentially be used for something. Yeah. But you could harvest that rock and bring it into your shop and say, I'm going to try this like, <laughs> you know, right. whatever this Stone Age technology yeah. thing. And it becomes a tool for yeah. you. So I think that is an important thing to highlight that it really is about intentionality and about um, a purposeful extension of your capacities. You want to do something, and this instrument is going to help me extend my ability. Yeah, I mean, it, it, if you contrast the rock, say there's a rock sitting on the workbench downstairs, and next to it is a claw hammer. So mm-hmm. that claw hammer has built-in intention, mm-hmm. right? It is meant to do a couple tasks very well. Mm-hmm. It can hit things, and it can remove those things that it just hit. And so the rock is full of potential, but, uh, you know, you could throw it through a window. You could, like you said, use it as a paperweight. Uh, that hammer is, is designed with intention for specific tasks. Sure. So, um, you know, it's, it's like it's, flint napping though, too. Like yes. flint napping, you're taking a rock and you're purposefully shaping it mm-hmm. for a specific uh, aim or outcome or action. Right. I mean, it's kind of like the, the idea of... Um, talking about, well, what other animals use tools? Well, like chimpanzees will get a blade of grass and stick it in an anthill and the ants mm-hmm. will come out and it will eat the ants right. off. So therefore that's that's a tool. Well, yes, if it's used in that way. Yeah, but, but it was blade, grass two minutes it ago. It was grass two minutes ago and it will it will be just, you know, dust on the forest floor pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the intention is in, or the, the use as a tool is in the intention and the way it is used. So what's a machine then? I mean, that's, so, oh, okay, so... Everything anyone uses mm. to do something creative is a tool? Yeah, right. Or is there some other meaningful yeah. distinction? So there are, there are two, two terms thrown around a lot uh, that you hear. One is the idea of power tools, and the other is machines. Mm. Okay, yeah. Now, those are not synonymous, right? I mean, that's, we would, I think we'd agree on that. Those are not the same how things. Would, how would you define it? Well, so a power tool is a machine that you plug in. And a machine does not necessarily have to be plugged in. Like okay, the, sure. the spring pole lathe is a machine. Yep. If you think of, um, you know, like Archimedes, like simple machines, like a, a lever is a, a machine mm-hmm. in a sense, like an inclined plane. Um, anything with, uh, you know, that rotates about an axis or has a series of moving parts to achieve, it doesn't matter what's powering it, uh, whether it's leg powered or dog powered yeah. it's a machine yeah right? well and so um uh tim ingold an anthropologist has written about some of this to the history of uh, machinery and the development this transition from tool to machine um it, that's not an era that's saying the development of these instruments that they become machines and what that what the distinction would be and he talks a lot about rotary motion that mm. what it's doing is when you get into a situation like a lathe and you you, you're, you're sort of severing the direct relationship. So if I were to push a chisel, my hand is going to take a chisel and push it. There's nothing severing the connection between my, my arm moving forward and the chisel cutting. They're right. directly connected, right? Yeah, it's a one-to-one interaction. Right, but if you all of a sudden break that up and you, just to, to change the analogy, well, actually, so the lathe is, is actually a, a complex of two different kinds because you have you're doing two things on a lathe. You're rotating the the piece, mm-hmm. right? I'm speaking about a foot-powered lathe right now, right? So a foot-powered lathe, you're rotating the piece with your foot, 
but then your your hands are holding a chisel or a gouge and you're cutting shapes, yeah. right? So the shapes are determined by your guiding of your hand. There's nothing forcing your hands to cut in a certain way, but the rotation, you you can't mess up the rotation. Right, it will like it rotates. spin. Yeah. And the way that that's, that's done is by pumping your foot up and down. Mm-hmm. So it's an it's it's the lathe is translating an up and down motion into a rotary motion. So it's disassociating the the direct connection. If I had to spin with my hand the stock, that would be a direct connection. But obviously it doesn't right. work. I, there's no way to yeah, do that. Yeah, imagine you're trying to turn a, like a spindle and you're holding it in one hand and rotating it with your wrist towards your chisel, which you're holding <laughs> in midair. Yeah. So he talks about this machinery. Uh, the way a lot of this machinery works is that it's actually um, transferring uh, motion, and, and this rotary motion really comes in in a way that's that's quite powerful and effective. But there is inherently a disassociation. It's it's I can just pump my foot up and down mindlessly, and it does exactly what I want it to do. It keeps going around and around, or around and back and around mm-hmm. and back. Right. Um, and so the disassociation happens. Uh, when as machinery is um, complexifying or growing, so uh, the way that I would define a machine, um, it's a little bit longer definition, but um, it really gets at the same idea that we're trying to talk about with jigs. That a machine is an apparatus that it's it's constructed to perform a task, the operation of which is externally assisted or guided. So okay. it's a thing that you make that does something, mm-hmm. but the operation of it is somehow guided or determined externally. And of course, that's to some degree, um, not every aspect. So I would describe a pole lathe as a machine. Yeah, It's a human-powered machine. Mm-hmm. But you can see then, if with this definition, and I'm, not, I'm trying to distill a bunch of historic... Uh, long-standing definitions of a machine. I'm not trying to come up with anything novel. I'm trying to distill right. what people have said about machinery. Because if we think machines were came into being with electricity, we're yeah. completely missing we're, what a machine off. is. Yeah. So machines came into being way before electricity came and way before steam power, right? Um, and so machinery is, I mean, even um, I think it's Rubeau talks about this machine that he has this, it's basically just a, a jig for, I think it's doing fluting on legs or something. Mm-hmm. It's this little, like, we call it a jig, but he describes it as a machine. It's you put the stock in and you crank this thing and it cuts a flute or so. I forgot mm-hmm. how exactly how it works, but it's this this fixture that does that guides cutting action. So it becomes a jig. And he says, this is a machine. Well, it's mm. just a hand crank thing. Right. Um, and so- Again, I think that really helps because it's it's moving beyond the whole power source issue. Right. And and I think the power source thing can really trip people up. Like, oh, you're saying if you plug something in, you don't have skill. You're not a hand. No, not, that's, that's nothing to yeah. do with the discussion at all. So let's just leave the power out of it. Right. Of course, power is relevant. Right. It makes a difference. I mean, but th- that's not even what we're talking about right now. Yeah. It's more just about uh, guiding the tool. Yeah. And so Ingold is, he's useful in a lot of ways um, in the way that he uh, makes these clear distinctions. And he looks back, you know, he's an anthropologist. So he he looks at how um, uh, technique, techne, has evolved into technology over the course of, of uh, you know, the time that humans have been around. And right. so he does make a distinction about 
technology, which is interesting and was super interesting to me to hear from you first, because I had always fallen in the camp of thinking about, um, you know, here's a, a, a phrase in air quotes, stone age technology, sure. right? Yep. Or the idea like lithics technology or, mm-hmm. um, all these other things that, that take a practice that, that was done thousands of years ago and applying that ology term to it mm-hmm. as if it was um, some sort of science back then. Right, that was exactly. their way of doing it, and so therefore that was their technology. So again, a rock is technology, right. just like a minute ago a rock was a tool until we tried to clear that up a little bit. So now, <laughs> is a rock technology? Uh, well... Well, no. For a few, it's, there are layers to it. So a rock laying on a on a uh, hiking trail is not even a tool. It's just a rock, right? right? Um, but you can turn it, a rock into a tool. Um, but technology. I mean, I think what Ingold is basically arguing is he's um, his book is called The Perception of the Environment, by the way. And his the third section of his book is talking about skill. And it's it's in this section that a lot of this stuff um, is really helpful, really insightful. But um, Ingold talks about. Um, as you mentioned, the distinction between techne, which is a Greek word for art or craft. So there's this thing out there in the world, mm-hmm. techne, and, and it's referring to people making things, artists doing things, um, pe- craftspeople doing work. That's techne, right? Well, then what ended up happening is if you think of it as art, right, just in a broad sense, art, craft, um, this word started to appear in classical um, philosophy, technology. But what they were actually, ology is like reasoning or rationality, mm-hmm. right? And that's the ology part of it. So um, techneology, what they they were actually talking about the art of reasoning, mm. right? So they're putting those two words. They were talking about the art of reasoning, technology. Okay. But then we ended up, as things start, evolved, that word started to be used in the other way, the reasoning of art, the logic behind craft. So it became a scientific or a study of this logical approach to craftsmanship, as opposed to just leaving techne alone and letting techne be techne. Right. Yeah, it became ologized. It became it. a science. And that, that's part of our, our tendency to rationalize everything these days, right? Yeah. I mean, that was, that's kind of a tendency. Like we look at a thing and we can only think about it scientifically because we're so in that water now, mm-hmm. as we have been for the past few hundred years that we can't approach it from any other angle besides uh, distilling it, cutting it apart into its pieces, and then understanding it as it sits safely in test tubes. Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of our way of doing things. And so when you look at Stone Age technology, you go through, there's like a, a step guide of how to make a, a, a Salutrian spear point. Like first you do this, and then you do this, and then you do this, <laughs> which is not the way that the people uh, making those points, you know, thousands of years ago would have approached it. Like, sure. oh, I need my my guide mm-hmm. so I can um, bring this down back into the steps needed to, to do this project. Yeah. Um, but that is how we think about things today uh, with our, our very rational minds. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, obviously I think... Ingold is actually explicitly building off of David Pye, um, and he's talking about this workmanship of certainty, this technologizing of work, and that kind of thing. Um, and we've actually talked about this somewhat in Defining Craftsmanship, the podcast episode that we were talking about that, Ingold and craft and technology somewhat. Um, but I, I think what's really important to, to 
to highlight here is what we're not trying to do is we're not trying to necessarily separate all of these different uh, devices and instruments into different discrete categories. Like the, there's a jig category and right. then there's a tool category, a machine category. And the main objective is that you figure out that thing in your hand, mm-hmm. which of these three does it Where belong in? Where does it in? fall? And is like, that in your camp or outside your camp? Now that might be a useful <laughs> exercise to work through in your head. And I think it probably is, but that's not our point here at all. It's not about trying to categorize specific instruments or tools or machines into buckets that you can say, well, that's that thing. Right. Okay. So what? But the point is, is actually to, um, to make distinctions, um, between the exercise of manual skill and external control. That's the fundamental distinction that we're trying to highlight. Not which one of these things or which bucket does this thing belong into, but being able to identify that there is a distinction between dexterity, mm-hmm. hand skill, and external control yep. jig. So hence the name, again, skills over jigs. That's the distinction we're trying to, to lay out there, that there is, there is a line, and whether it be a spectrum between the skill and the jig, you need to recognize that every uh, a device you use or a machine you employ or a jig you use is somewhere on that spectrum. And it may or may not be inhibiting your growth as a an artisan. Mm-hmm. It may or may not be inhibiting your ability to use and grow in your skills because mm-hmm. you're rel- it's, it's like uh, the training wheel analogy, right? Mm-hmm. When you start riding a bicycle... Oftentimes, I mean, I don't think either of our kids use training wheels, right? Right. But typically people use training wheels on their bikes and it's a jig to keep the bike, you know, upright, vertical, so that the kid can learn to pedal and learn to steer. And then you remove that jig so that the skill that they've acquired can take over. You don't leave the jig in place. And so there's that line where... um, a jig can be valuable for some things, but then it impedes your ability to both develop your skill and to really fully enjoy riding a bike. To enjoy and also to to make adjustments, to yeah. to do things on the fly. Obviously, you can't really do an off-road uh, bike trail <laughs> with training wheels. Right. You're, you're going to be really limited in what you can do because you're so dependent on these training wheels to lock you in. Yeah. And I mean, the interesting thing there about the training wheel analogy too is that when you take them off, you actually do have to relearn riding a bike because yep. with training wheels, you can't lean into turns. You don't do any like counter steering. You, you have to relearn all those balance elements, which, mm-hmm. which for a time can put you back in square one. Like I still remember, um, pretty clearly in my head, the first time I took off without training wheels and going forward and you're pedaling and you're like, you suddenly realize this has got to stop somehow. Like I'm going to either face plant or I'm going to hit a building, but somehow I have to stop and I don't know how to do that. <laughs> right. So there's, there's a sense of relearning once that the jig is removed. So, yeah. so, but again, so again, you know, I think, um, I can just picture a woodworker listening at the bench, uh, making, putting a box together and what are these guys even talking about? Who cares? And I think that's, is this just pedantic? Or hair splitting? Yeah, that's is, that's what we're all about. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is this just about being, uh, you know, particular and, mm-hmm. and being right and having everything kind of uh, definable? And there it is, just so you all know. Right. I mean, is that the point? 
I don't think so. I don't think so either. Um, and and I think it gets back to a, a bigger argument, like mm-hmm. even more broad and more uh, important than than just woodworking distinctions. It's it gets back to uh, you know understanding the world. Mm-hmm. It gets back to understanding what's going on here sure. around us. Right. So, like you know, one way of um, one way of thinking about making distinctions is that when you're when you're um, when you make, when someone makes a distinction saying, this is one thing and this is another thing. They're not the same thing. Right. What What's trying to happen here, what they're trying to do is they're trying to draw your attention to something that you can't see. You just see, um, you know, green and aqua as mm-hmm. green. Right. And someone's saying, well, no, I mean, look, this is green and this is aqua because the seed has some blue yeah. in here. And you go, Oh, oh, I didn't I, even. I, I, can, I couldn't kind of see that. Couldn't now. see that before. Yeah. And so, what it's what the whole idea behind making distinctions is drawing your attention to to facets of the situation, i.e., your bench work. We're trying to draw attention to different ways of working um, that people don't readily recognize. They're obscured because if you walk up to your workbench and you say, "Everything is a tool. Everything's technology. Everyone's a craftsperson because they're creative." That's a pretty limited way to look at it because now you don't have any th- way to assess, well, what's going on with this tool and this cut and how can I be more involved? I feel like I'm just standing behind a jig and you're kind of like, I, I don't, you don't have the, the, um, the categories to start thinking about it. So the whole point is to make you aware of this particular facet of woodworking, skill and jigs, and that, that these two things are always involved in all of woodworking. A hand plane is jigging part of it. Mm-hmm. And we're just trying to draw your attention to that and say, and there it is. And which, which aspect, what remaining facets of planing a board are left up to your skill? Right. Right. So a chisel and a hand plane and a uh, Stanley 45, th- these, this whole range of degrees of uh, jiggery, yeah. <laughs> this de- these degrees of workmanship of certainty, just recognizing it and saying, okay, so that's what that is, and then saying, okay, so could you actually do that without that layer of jigs, the layer of fences and layer of stops? Could you? Do you have the the, the ability to do that by hand? What skills over jigs is talking about, and what we're talking about here is, if you say, well, I can't do that. I I need a a fence. I need a thing to right. be able to do it successfully. And we're saying, okay, well, yeah. there's an area to improve. Yeah, because you can overcome that and you can grow in that. And then you can greatly enjoy that practice, which is challenging and rewarding to do. It's it's kind of like, you know, when you think of distinctions, you could take any area of, of enjoyment in life. Uh, the two that pop into my mind right now are drinking coffee and let's say listening to our uh, podcast. Uh, well, that's not what I was going to say, but hey, that's a good point. Uh, let's say listening to classical music, uh. right? So if you're a newbie in either of those, you can go and you get a cup of gas station coffee and you load it with cream and sugar and you're like, oh man, I love coffee. This mm-hmm. is good stuff. Sure. Um, and then you can start to learn a little bit about some distinctions. You can go to a, a local place here in Blue Hill, Maine that roasts really great coffee and you can get a really good like Ethiopian like honey process, like a light roast, you don't add cream and sugar and you taste it and you say, that is different. That is 
distinctive. And there are. And then you get some Honduras, and you say, "Yeah, oh, oh well, that's something else. Yeah. That's nothing like this other drink." And and you learn about how it was grown. You learn about where it was grown. The difference in the soils, even if you want to get mm-hmm. that far, and altitude, you say, and yeah. this is really interesting and amazing. And I find I enjoy this so much better than that. You know, the thirty-two ounce jumbo <laughs> cup of of mud with cream and sugar in it, which I'm not you know, casting aspersions on, but, <laughs> but it's different. You're drawing a distinction, yeah, right? Sure. You're, you're drawing out of, uh, the, the, the homogeny and you're, you're classifying and you're learning mm-hmm. and you're growing. It's the same with classical music. You listen to a classical music station and everything's kind of violin-y and there's some brasses and there's some woodwinds and you're like, Oh, this is nice it, classical music. It sounds like it should be at like a restaurant yeah, or like an elevator you know, where or old something. People listen to music, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> or you start to pick up some differences and some difference in the instruments and differences in the, the way the music was written and how certain themes repeat. And, and you can start to really appreciate it at a much deeper level. Mm-hmm. And so, that's the value of learning distinctions, mm-hmm. you, a deeper appreciation and um, more enjoyment of that thing. Well, I think the other thing is, you know, just to use another analogy, you know, when you're talking about like um, naming something, saying, uh, you know, like in political discourse today, that's it's really common to name things. Yeah. Like the, you, you win the argument if you frame it like these yeah. people are X. Yeah. These Strong people man. are. Yeah. And then everybody, they're kind of labeled that way. And that's right. how political discourse tends to happen. It's about, you know, framing the discussion. You know, yeah. It's like you're naming it right there. Um, and so whether it's naming people or it's naming concepts, um, that's just inherent in what we're trying to do. We're trying to, as people communicate, naming and making distinctions. The reason that that's helpful is because it's revealing things that are previously unseen by people. Mm-hmm. Saying these kinds of people are like that, or this kind of thing operates like this, and you go, it does. Oh, hmm, I guess I hadn't thought of it before. And so, making that distinction or naming it like that, then you are able to identify the distinctions. It just reminds me of this classic, um, you know, I think it must be a psychology illustration or something. I'm, I'm sure you've all seen it before, but the black and white image of the black vase. Right. You know, where you have flowers in, there's yep, a vase. I, I've seen that, yeah. And the whole point, of course, is that you look at the black vase and someone says, okay, nice vase. Right. What's up with the vase? There's a silhouette of a black vase. And someone says, no, no, it's two ladies. Yep, they're what? Face, they're no, no, the black other. vase, see the whole thing? And it's it's that negative um, the negative profile the silhouette of the two faces and you say to the person well no no do you see the two women's faces they're facing each other see their noses and they're then almost touching all of a sudden you realize oh my goodness I only saw a vase I didn't see these two faces right yeah. and or the duck and the witch's face and there are these right. classic um, uh, these classic illustrations to try to get people to understand that. You can look at the world in a certain way and say, all I see is a duck mm-hmm. or all I see is a vase. And when someone comes along and says, actually, have you seen the, the women's faces over here? Yeah. Have you seen the witch's nose with the wart on the end of it or whatever that right. is in that picture? Shift your thinking a little. All of a sudden you go, oh my goodness, I never thought of it that way. That Looking at it that way really helps me to understand what's going on in this whole picture mm-hmm. or whatever. And so that's that's, I think, fundamentally why distinctions... Um, making, you know, naming things in a particular way, you know, saying a word is defined this way, 
That's why it's helpful not to be picky, but to help people see the world in a different way. So there are a lot of different things I think you can um, be be wrestling with as you're working through these questions. Um, but when you get your mind around this particular distinction we're making, right? Skills, jigs, how that works, yeah. that it's not about being better than other people. If, if that's what you're hearing, you're completely misunderstanding what we're trying to say. But it's just making a distinction between these two um, ways of working. Mm-hmm. When you can get your mind around that, um, then you can move past the the obsession with trying to figure out, well, is this thing a tool or a machine or a... Right. You can kind of say, well, I don't actually care about trying to categorize a particular thing. I'm actually just trying to maximize my engagement with the work. Yeah. Or I'm trying to control the outcome of this particular cut. We're, we're trying to uh, help you give, you, give you some categories to think about ways to improve your work for your own satisfaction and um, successful results. Yeah, and, and understand, like, I, I think a big part of the Skills Over Jigs course that is really useful is, so there's, um, there's an assessment in there, right? Yep. And so you take this assessment and you go through these series of operations and you basically quantify how capable you feel about doing certain operations freehand. And so from that, you can start to extrapolate like, um, okay, so that means I feel I'm, I'm particularly weak in this area uh, of, of freehand working. I feel I, I, I'm less confident here. And so having that understanding of the way that maybe you've always and forever um, only, you know, chop mortises on a mortiser, you know, or, or you use your drill press or whatever. And you say, I don't feel confident to, to do it by hand at the bench or sitting on a, a low bench or whatever. So basically understanding that allows you to see how that using that machine has affected your confidence to do something mm-hmm. and how, um, and maybe has affected your enjoyment to do that. So you can step back, assess, and then re-engage that in a way to to grow those skills and and learn new ways of doing things that you might really find you love. Um, yeah, this this whole discussion kind of reminds me of you know thinking about being particular about word usage and that kind of thing, um, and also maybe the implicit accusation that this is pointless. Yeah, this is fuddy duddyism. Fuddy duddyism is that a thing? Yeah, sure. Uh, but you know, pedantic, it's just, it's just really nitpicking at, you know, particular definitions. Um, it just reminds me of some of the discussions that people, um, you know, like we use the term bench hook in very different ways today. Um, and not many, but there are two primary ways it's used. Um, so one quick example of this historic term, you know, a lot of what we're trying to do also is, um, trying to hold on to or recapture some historic terms for woodworking, um, like bench hook. Yeah. A bench hook, or just a hook, um, that is a long-standing word throughout craft tradition uh, to describe um, the 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 uh, either the wooden stop or the metal teeth that come up from a bench, so you can butt a board up against it and mm-hmm. plane against that. Right, yep. that's called a hook. That's a bench hook. Today, people call that a planing stop. Right, and so um, and then they have this other thing that they call a bench hook, which. Uh, is the if you think of this, you know, the modern bench hook idea, this wooden, there's a lip on the bottom that catches the front of the bench, and then it, 
has a lip at the back. It's like so a you fence for, on it. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, it's a fixture for cross-cutting small stock. It's a bench hook. That's what people call it today. Uh, Nicholson, in the early 1800s, he referred to that as a side hook. And so now different people, terminology varies by region and, and different time period and that kind of thing. So we're not stuck on, you know, what, you know, the exact particulars of what everyone called everything. But I think it is interesting that the illustration, when you have this, let's just say you walked into a museum, you didn't know anything about hand tool woodworking, and you saw an old workbench. And you said, oh, what's that thing sticking up? And someone mm-hmm. said, oh, they, they put a board against that so they could plane. Yeah. And you go, oh. So it's, so a, that's like a, it's, it's a, like a stop like for a, planing. Yeah, it's like a planing stop, right? Yeah. And that's the kind of that's the kind of way that these words get developed, that people don't know the actual word for it. So they describe it they right. give it some some descriptor right there on the spot and then all of a sudden for 40 years yeah. or whatever for 80 years it becomes what people call that thing yeah. it's a it's you've a introduced i mean not, not to put it too bluntly but you introduce new new lexicon out of your ignorance for what it has been called for hundreds of years sure so so, so what happens then is then you say okay well then you've had this other thing and you go, I don't know what to call that. Well, let's call that a bench hook because it's kind of like a hook shape thing. Right. And then what ends up happening is it just really uh, gets kind of muddled up. And so people, now they're like modern terms for these other pieces. Now, of course, language changes. Language evolves over time. And that's, we're not arguing against that or denying that. But it is interesting that when you think about uh, what people refer to as planing stops, which are called bench hooks throughout history, right? Up this is very This is what the craft... Uh, has called these things hooks. Right? It's a bench hook. Um, when you when you uh, look at a situation, you say, "I don't know what that's called," and then there's a new name put on it. You go, "Yeah, that's what that is." Um, that's fine. That's still going to work for you. It's still going to hold the board. But what you're doing is you're not, you know, connecting back with the craft tradition to say, "What is this thing?" And then they say, oh, "It's called a bench hook." And you say, "Oh." Why is it a hook? What's it for? And you're learning from the tradition that's coming before you. And so a lot of this idea for us, uh, retaining words like bench hook for what bench hook always was um, and using um, side hook for what people call a bench hook today. The reason we're trying to do that is we're we're interested to try to um, understand from people who have come before us. Um, And I think that's, if we're thinking about trying to preserve or... um, uh, it's like preserving the flame. Uh, yeah. Gustav Mahler was talking yep. about yep. tradition is uh, it's, preserving the fire. Yeah. It's not the worship of ashes, but it's the preservation of fire. fire. Yeah. yeah. So if, if we're thinking about preserving a craft tradition, hand tool woodworking, I believe, I, I would contend that we should also preserve the terminology. Theoretically, hypothetically, if we had all those tools there mm-hmm. and we just one day decided, let's just reinvent all the names of these tools. Right. Obviously, no one would propose that because we realize the liability of that. Yep. No, we should actually be connected to... These tools didn't just come out of nowhere. And so consciously deciding to use historic terminology um, to the best of our knowledge and ability is a, a, a conscious choice to remain tethered to this thing that we call a hand plane, where it came from. And tell me about this. I want to learn how to jump into this tradition, this this craft, and learn from from that. Yeah. I mean we, you know, to keep to keep MT up and running, we utilize a lot of different um, digital technology, right? Believe it or not, 
you know, we use <laughs> smartphones and, and again, you know, we both have internal combustion engine vehicles and, um, but we use, we use apps for things like giving access to our courses and we use apps to, um, you know, the, the daily dispatch is hosted on an app and we have these other things. All that said, we get a lot of emails from, uh, companies and, and places that want to help us with, uh, utilizing technology. And in reading those emails, we see this, um, very modern, uh, way faux pas faux, of, of making new words, right? <laughs> Inventing new words. So there's this whole thing that's like biz speak or like this business speak where yeah, both in like marketing and in like corporate yeah, speak, it like can those, be, I'll bring uh, out a new word. It's a bit cringy. Okay. To, to, to read these things and to see these same terminologies over and over. My, my favorite pet peeve is the word leveraging. All right. So first of all, that's now a noun that's being used as a verb. And that's, you know, that can be acceptable. Like, you know, you butter your toast or whatever, but it, it's basically kind of a, a lazy way of using a, a buzzword that sounds relevant, but it has like little clarity or value. It sounds kind of edgy to say. Yeah. It's oh, super yeah. edgy. Like, like leverage your assets for yeah. this market research program. So what the this, heck does that mean? This email we got recently, I'll just read a few sentences from it, right? So this, <laughs> this platform provides you with what you need to integrate your marketing efforts. It has a powerful marketing CPM, or sorry, CRM. I don't know if either of those really matter if I get it right. Um, powerful marketing CRM to help you get to know your customers better, multiple channels to help get the word out, and AI-powered insights and analytics to help you know what's working. And then it says, these new channels allow you to leverage your entire audience I don't even know what that means. Like I'm picturing everyone listening up on a platform and I'm trying to lift you up with a, with a lever. Uh, leverage your entire audience so you can encourage new engagement with your brand. Uh, and I could go on for a while, but mm. basically you're, I'm reading here a lot of fluff, but I have no idea what this thing does. And so this is the tendency to use words that actually have no concrete meaning, and there's not much being conveyed here. Well, and I think the, the basic thing with that, this idea of verbing, taking a noun and using it as a verb. Yeah, like, over and so over. Just the basic idea of like leveraging something mm -hmm. doesn't make any sense. Leverage is a noun. Yeah, you actually dialoguing. You, you lever something. Yeah. So right there, there is a verb form for that. Yeah. I mean, you gain leverage. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's, it's interesting because what happens is that's um, a similar sort of thing that happens in uh, craft terminology, uh, tra mm -hmm. trade jargon. Uh, to those outside the trade, it sounds made up. Right. Right. Trade it jargon. can be incomprehensible. But I think it's really important to maintain the trade jargon because it is making useful distinctions. Yeah. Otherwise, everything becomes a hand planer. Or right. a block planer. Yeah. Or a, yeah, and, the block planer. Yeah. So, you know, you go to a yard sale and you see a block planer there for sale. They think it's a block planer because it's a block of wood. It's a wooden body. Let's say it's a wooden, a wooden body, body for plane. plane. And it's called a block planer because, first of all, it's a block of wood, so that's got to be what it is. And second, it's a planer because it's that's what it does. we know what a planer is. We know what a planer is. It's that machine that you run boards through that planes them. That's a planer. So that's a hand tool. It's one of them block planers, right? Yeah. Uh, and so you've basically lost all of, uh, all of the understanding and knowledge behind uh, the actual naming of that tool. Let's say it's a four plane or it was called a, a jack plane or something like that. Um, 
because of the the lack of knowledge and understanding of what that tool did, it's basically just described, and that description becomes what everyone calls it, and mm-hmm. you've lost the original. Um, yeah. So the original a, a meaning. planer is a machine. Mm-hmm. That, we all know what that is. That's a, a corded, plugged-in, stationary machine that you uh, surface boards with. But a a block plane is a, a specific, distinct kind of hand plane. Yeah. Um, that is what it's for surfacing. Yeah, it was. Butcher, I guess they were blocks. originally developed to surface uh, butcher blocks and take like cleaver marks out because it's the On low the angle, grain. the low angle metal bodied block plane. Yeah, right. So that's a block plane. Um, a wooden bodied plane is not a block plane. It's right. it's a wooden hand plane. Um, so you know, I think a lot of that kind of stuff. You know, it's it's obviously if you're an antique dealer or you're, um, you know, someone who has uh, some old tools in your your attic we're not trying to say you know people in the trade are going to snicker at those outsiders who don't know our terms for it no 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 that's not the point it's we're actually just saying hey for those of us who are woodworkers let's be clear about what these tools and machines and all these words actually mean so that with this internal discussion within the craft we can actually communicate with each other and we're not taking um the antique dealer's mislabeled tool and then right. now bringing that word into woodworking and people get all jumbled up. Yeah. Obviously a lot of this has to do with um, none of us that I know of um, learned, you know, we learned woodworking in this like apprenticeship guild system that these things right. are established and that's fine. I get that. Um, but we also do have technologies that we can look this stuff up mm-hmm. and we do have so many different books that are being reprinted. We have all these resources so it's not that um, we don't have access to what is this thing called. Um, so much of what our passion is is trying to get information out there, so this craft can be maintained and that we can right. this can be carried forward. Right, and you know, so much of it, I think, um, so much of the value in being, uh, as I've like to say, I, I aspire to be a gracious curmudgeon. Right. I think about John Brown, who was uh, that Welsh stick chair maker, who was... He got uh, half of it. By many accounts, he had the curmudgeon down, Pat. (laughs) Not necessarily gracious, but what he did was he preserved something, right? He he was able to hold on to something in the face of everyone telling him that's ridiculous or that's not possible, right? Um, He's like, "I, I want to make my chairs by hand and live simply and, you know... Other parts of him that were less appealing don't necessarily make the books, but uh, he he preserved he held on to something and and passed it along as best as he could, and I think there's there are a lot of people who understand that like preserving something like local vernacular like language right mm-hmm. um, there's a, there are a lot of different dialects a lot of different distinctions in speech. And um, places where maybe there are only a few hundred people left who speak a certain language, but there are efforts to preserve that language because they recognize if that goes away, we won't get it back and we'll have lost something that tells us what it is to be a human in this place. I actually remember I was working for a client one time restoring antique furniture and he was from Massachusetts. And he was telling me how embarrassed he was by his Massachusetts accent. He wanted to sound like Southern California, like oh, a newscaster whoa. or something. And he was huh. saying, like, hey, I've been working on it for years. I've been trying to get this Massachusetts accent huh. out of me because it's just this, you know, this non-erotic language. It's just so embarrassing and that kind of thing. I remember being so 
confused, but also kind of disturbed. Like, wait, yeah. do we really all want to talk exactly like everyone else? Yeah. Or do we actually? Like, yeah. The, I think, you know, being able to preserve that, that pronunciation is so rich and great. Yeah. So it's, it is weird that this homogenization of industrial culture really is all about, let's just streamline this and get rid of any particularities. Let's just make everybody, or the ideal at least, should be everybody sounds the same. We all pronounce right. words the same way. Right. Yeah, and and that that's a, a sad ideal to aspire to because once you you wipe all the distinctions out and all the distinctives out and everything is the same, then everything just becomes dull mm-hmm. and lifeless. And um, so, as we were talking about these word definitions and thinking in terms of how they're valuable to preserve and to continue to use, like to to seek out the right terms, the terms that have been used for a long time, like terms that our great, great grandparents would recognize. Like there's value in doing that. And um, it it kind of reminds me, and I, I was reading this article um, a few years ago, I think I came across it. And it's talking about, um, Joshua, we've talked about like pie words, right? Like mm-hmm. these proto-Indo-European, these, these words that are part of a language that is not written down anymore, but they kind of undergird um, like uh, languages of the Indian subcontinent and Europe and a lot of Asia. And there, there are these proto words that were, um, they're o- older than any written language, but they seem to exist across the spectrum. So you have, you have these words that are, they call them ultra conserved words. Uh, they're, they're words that if you'd go back in time, thousands of years and speak to someone, they would very possibly understand you, even though the those words, those those words, those in, yeah, those given words. Yes. Yeah, so there, there was a study done a few years ago um, about the uh, they're they're searching for these ultra conserved words, and they track down like twenty four of them that they say exist across the spectrum of all these languages, and um, they they give rich meaning to words like today um, that we still use, like mother and father. Right. These are words that are so ancient, but if you would go to, let's say, Europe 8,000 years ago and say the word mother to someone, they would, you know, in English, they would know what you're saying, or at least you'd be able to convey it because their word for mother is very similar to your word for mother. Hmm. These are words that their meaning has been preserved. And other words like, um, you know, words you'd expect like water and fire and mm-hmm. uh, words that are maybe more surprising, like bark, is an ultra-conserved word. So you go and you say the word bark, and someone across many languages would understand what you are saying because uh, you know bark was an extremely important component of, of trees that everyone used and made use of, and it was necessary for survival. Uh, they said one of the more surprising words they came across that was ultra-conserved is the word spit. Spit. So if you go and you say, oh, because that's the lubricant when you're honing your chisels. Yeah, exactly. On yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. On your oil stone, you don't want to use oil. You want to use saliva. Spit. That's exactly. But uh, the thought was that that that's like an automatopoeia that you couldn't express any better with a word. So it's just the word spit. It's the sound. Hmm. Um, But it's so interesting to think about the fact that these words have maintained not only their definition but their sound through cultures and across time hmm. for thousands of years. And how, if you think about it, it would be a real shame to lose that, that continuity between us and people who lived 
uh, thousands of years ago who used those same words. Yeah. And so I, you know, I really think there's a great value in in holding on to these things because we're we're human beings. We all are, and um, holding on to these things that make us human and have made us human for a long time is uh, is kind of an important thing to do. We shouldn't just throw it all out because that's kind of the modern thing to do. Yeah, sure. Um, but you were talking about, there was um, a little while back, it was, I think it was the issue five that uh, yeah. Megan, Megan Fitzpatrick did um, the, an article where she was talking about uh, woodworking and classical uh, literature. And she was talking, had several excerpts and was kind of stringing together these uh, different uh, examples, drawing out from different sources, talking about woodworkers in this, classical literature um and so um there was one instance the poem at the end do you have yep. that there yeah so she she quoted uh as you said from a number of of um books some of them 19th century some of them earlier um but this is from the uh the debate of the carpenter's tools which is oh, yeah, a very yeah, old right. poem right it's middle english and so i i feel i must say it's my claim to fame here if you look at the footnote in her article uh, she quotes a lengthy excerpt from this poem and it notes translation from Middle English by Michael Updegraff. So <laughs> I, I did a lot, of re, a lot of work on this poem and a lot of research because uh, this is the poem, this is um, taking these tools and these tools are having a conversation. They're debating, right? And so there are a lot of tools mentioned in this poem that we're still not quite sure what they are. And so there are scholars who, who debate, like, what is a twivet? And I'm not, I'm not speaking fine. I'm not, you know, I didn't mispronounce that. That the word is a twivet. Um, we know what a twibble is. We don't know what a twivet is. And there are other words um, like the idea of a broad axe. It describes a broad axe, but it says the plane my brother is. So this, this tool described here is the brother to a plane. So people are saying, is this the same broad axe that we're familiar with today? Or is this a different one? But all that to say, all these tools were having this debate, you know, five or 600 years ago, and they're still tools that we use in our shops today. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, it talks about the whetstone and the ax and the ads and the plane and all these things that we still use. And we can read this poem and it, they immediately come to mind because we know exactly what they're talking about. Our, my, my plane looks uh, nearly identical to the plane having this dialogue mm -hmm. and that that is a, a powerful thing and um a worthwhile thing to to continue to move forward in that understanding of of who these tools are so to speak <laughs> who they are yeah so i think you know bringing it back around to this idea of um making clear distinctions understanding the tools that we're picking up and uh, not only naming this tool, knowing the name of the tool, but also how did these tools work? How mm. does, what is my, the nature of my interaction with this tool, with this material? How am I to think about this? Um, I, I hope that this podcast episode has been helpful to try to, uh, let you see the two faces as opposed to the vase, right? right. Or let you see the, the frog or the, I'm sorry, the duck instead of the witch's face or something to, to try to see your work from a different angle or different vantage point that you said, huh, I've been staring at my workbench and I hadn't, it's been obscured to me, this whole idea of the degree to which I'm engaged and the degree to which things are jigged. Um, so I hope that this kind of reveals a whole new layer of work that uh, is both more efficient, but also much more enjoyable. 
that you can you know make informed decisions saying how do i want to do this or what is the the best way forward and not just say you know get jump on some search engine and say okay what's the best jig for xyz and then mm. you buy that one thing actually you know really understanding the nature of the work and having the skill to go whichever path you need in a given project whether it's a batch production or a one-off uh, we want you to have that kind of skill we want you to be able to even make that choice because you do have that uh, ability to do that. So that's, I think, a lot of what we want to do here. And I hope it's been helpful to you. I mean, if you have uh, comments or questions, you know, you can leave them below. But we appreciate you listening to our podcast. You know, we this is number 49. Uh, we have one more and then we're at 50. And then after that, we're going to do number 51. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's usually how it, how it progresses, I think. <laughs> um. So if you haven't already, uh, you can subscribe to uh, to get this podcast wherever you get them, Spotify or wherever. Um, if you have any questions or comments, uh, leave them below, and we're happy to interact. And Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. Mm-hmm.